This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Science at the Theater's Eight Big Ideas, brought to you by the Friends of Berkeley Lab. My name is Jeff Miller, and I'm head of public affairs at the lab, and I will be your host for this evening. Uh, this may seem like a strange question to start with since we've not been in Oakland before, but, uh, and I can't really see that well, but those of you are, who've never been to a science at the theater from Berkeley Lab before, could you please raise your hands? Excellent. That's just what we wanted. And just out of curiosity, any of you here who happened to see our booth at First Friday last week? I think I saw a couple of... Yes. Okay, great. Well, thank you all for coming. And hello, Oakland. Please give yourselves a round of applause. So about our program tonight, we are going to have eight Berkeley Lab scientists talking for eight minutes each on eight different topics. They'll be talking everything from combustion to comets. But, you know, we we often get a lot of questions about uh, Berkeley Lab and what what is it and and what does it stand for and what does it mean. So we get questions. And you may have stuff. What is Berkeley Lab? You've heard of us before. We can't really do billboard campaigns at the lab. But if we could do one, this is something that it would look like. So let's imagine you saw this billboard along, 8580. So Berkeley Lab, this is our motto. We bring science solutions to the world. That's what we stand for. We do public science in the public interest with your taxpayer dollars. Thank you very much. So where are we? We're in the hills above the Cal campus, 200 acres. And we have 4,200 employees, uh, 13 Nobel Prizes, and lots of other awards and, and national honors. But what you may not know is, we're called Berkeley Lab, but half of the lab is actually in the Oakland city limits, which is one of the reasons why we're here. So a little known fact. But even in telling you that, and you know, what is really Berkeley Lab? How would you answer that question? So what I want to leave you with tonight is the fact that whatever the nation's urgent problems, whatever the crazy wild innovation that's going to lead to new jobs or or, uh, create whole new industries, we're on it. That's what we do. That's why we exist. So we would have a campaign like this that would say, we're on it. Clean water to clean energy is something we do. Uh, combating climate change, anticipating that change is going to happen. How do we adapt to it? Maybe how do we slow it down? Capturing carbon, placing it underground. That's one of the things we study. We're on this problem. Another one we could do is from dark energies to fuels from sunlight. Fuels from sunlight, artificial photosynthesis, that's an extremely cool concept. Are uh, we going to be able to bring it off? Maybe we can, maybe we won't, but I think it's, a, it's certainly worth trying. Uh, dark energy, dark matter, the understanding of the universe, these are all important things that we want to try to find out, which I think you share their interest in. And even understanding the trillions of microbes in the soil and how that could add to our food and fuel security. These are the kind of problems we work on. And we're happy about it. Look at these happy faces. <laughs> This is actually at NERSC, which is a supercomputing facility which is actually in Oakland, very close by, in case you didn't know that. And there we are bringing science solutions to the world. We're very happy about that. One of the things you hear a lot at the lab is when you ask people why they're there and they say, you know, well, we're here because we really think we can change the world. And that kind of sounds like a cliche, but when you hear it often enough from scientists who are so passionate about that, you realize that they actually do mean this. They do really think that they can do this. And that's wonderful for you and for us who work there because who are not scientists because there is someone working on these problems on our behalf. Now, a little bit about what we are, but what we are not. Now, 
If I leave you with no other thing tonight is we are not Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Uh, with all due respect to our friends farther east, um, we are not them, and they are not us, and that's okay. Um, we have a very distinct culture. We like it that way. They have their own. They like it that way, too. Uh, but uh, we're often confused, which is why we've actually defaulted to the name Berkeley Lab, although our full name still remains Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. So if you're asked in the future... What is Berkeley Lab? A simple answer is, it's a Department of Energy, national laboratory, that solves big problems and makes new technology possible. There are 17 national labs. We're just one, but we think we're the best. So, that's all you need to know. So, back to this. Tonight's program. Eight scientists talking only for eight minutes. How is that possible? How can we do this? Well, you're going to help. You notice this right here. This is our timer. They actually, yes, I hear someone say, yay. They've probably been at some science lectures before. Uh, we know how this goes. We're about public outreach. So this clock, as soon as they come out, will start running down. Now, I angled it. If you saw me a little bit before the show, I angled a little bit because one of them asked, we can't really see it. And I said, well, I'm going to tell the audience to cue you, but that wasn't going to be enough. So here's the cue. At about 30 seconds, I want you guys to start applauding very softly. See, this practice. Softly, softly. Not so loud that you block out the... Okay. Good, good, good. Okay, so that's their cue. They look here. They know they need to wrap it up. And there's actually a buzzer that goes off at eight minutes. They try to negotiate with me, you know, but I, we're, we're pretty harsh about this. We'll pull them off the stage. But they're good, very good about public outreach, so I'm sure we won't have too many problems. So I think that does it for me on the intro part. Uh, and with that, we can introduce our first presenter, Katie Antipas, who's going to talk about uh, supercomputers and energy efficiency. And she does work at NERSC, which is very close by. She was actually able to walk to the theater. So Katie, please join us on stage. Give her a warm welcome, please. Well, the first question you might have for me is, what's a supercomputer anyway? And one way you can start to think about this is to think about your desktop or your laptop that you have at home. So that computer probably has one, two, maybe four processor cores. Well, the supercomputers that we have at NERSC have over 100,000 processor cores in them. And um, we, the scientists uh, from around the country use these computers to do their, their research. Now, you can see on the slide, I've got two pictures of our computers. One is uh, Hopper after um, computer scientist Grace Hopper, and one is named Edison after the inventor Thomas Edison. So oftentimes we have scientists come and ask, or people come and ask us, well, how do you measure the performance of your supercomputer anyway? And, you know, the, the thing you should got to remember about supercomputers is they're really good at doing math, right? That's what these computers do. And so they do calculations. And um, so I put a couple example calculations up on the board, and we call these floating point operations. And they're floating point, that just means they have a decimal place, because we want to have really precise calculations. And so if I could do one of these calculations per second, we would say that my supercomputer had a performance of a single floating point operation per second. Okay? But we know the supercomputers have a, are a lot faster than that. And so if your supercomputer could do 1,000 calculations in a second, it would be a kiloflop computer. If it could do a million operations in a second, it would be a megaflop computer. A billion calculations in a second, a gigaflop computer. But where we are today, those two supercomputers that I showed you on the previous slide, 
Hopper and Edison, they're at the petaflop level. That means they can do a million billion calculations in a second. But what's even more fascinating than that is the demand from our scientists we can't even keep up with. And so we are trying to build a supercomputer that is a thousand times faster than petascale, which is exascale computer. But I'm actually not here to talk to you about how powerful these supercomputers are or even the great science that's done on them. I'm here to talk to you today about supercomputing's big problem. Does anyone know what that might be? So what happens when you're sitting at home, you're typing on your laptop, maybe you have shorts on, and after a while, what happens? <laughs> your, your supercomputer or your laptop starts to get hot, right? And there's even a name for this. <laughs> there's a syndrome, and it's called toasted leg syndrome. All right. Now, if you imagine that a laptop is capable of doing this, can you imagine what a supercomputer with 100,000 processors is capable of? And so, what do you do in uh, your laptop? You're running it for a while. What happens? A fan comes on to help keep it cool. Well, we have fans in supercomputers, too. And these are a couple of our fans. These fans are about this big, and they blow the air up through these cabinets of processors to keep them cool. We also use another technique, which is called liquid cooling, because it's actually more efficient to cool these computers uh, with liquid than air alone. But you well know that if it's summer and you turn your fan on, or you turn your air conditioning on, what happens at the end of the month? You got a big power bill, right? And so that's what is computing's big problem right now, is the power and the energy that these uh, computers are using. But this is not happening to centers like NERSC alone. This is affecting the whole computing industry. And so these um, uh, Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, they're all facing the same problem as we are. And so I want to quantify the magnitude of this problem for you. And so I, I told you that our supercomputer, Hopper and Edison, these were about a petaflop uh, scale computers. Well, a petaflop scale computer draws about a megawatt of power. And if you run a megawatt uh, power continuously for a year, your power bill will come out more or less to about a million dollars a year, which is a lot of money, right? But you know what's even more money is I told you that we are trying to build an exaflop computer, which is a thousand times faster than Hopper or Edison. So now you're like, okay, I've got to do my calculation. I've got a megawatt. I'm going to multiply that by 1,000. That's a gigawatt? I'm going to have a gigawatt computer, and in today's dollars, that would be a billion dollars to operate a year. So I can tell you that's far, far above our budget of our center <laughs> to run at all. So we've got a major problem. We have this huge demand of uh, computing from our scientists, but we'll, we will not have the ability to power these, these computers. And so I want to bring uh, one technical graph to you today. And if you're from the Bay Area, you might have, heard of, um, might have heard of Moore's Law before. And what Moore's Law stated was that every two years, the number of transistors in a chip would double. And so from the decades, for the 70s, the 80s, and 90s, 
The way Moore's law played out is that these transistors, they got tinier and tinier and tinier, thinner and thinner and thinner. And what you saw from this was your single processor got faster and faster. And this was great for scientists. It was great for you as a consumer because you bought a new computer and your application automatically went faster. But something happened around 2004. And what happened is that these transistors were getting so small, so thin, that they were unable to dissipate the heat. And what the hardware designers realized was that instead of making one processor really, really, really fast, what they could do was have two processing cores run them at a lower frequency, lower means slower, okay, and have more per, double, over double the performance, but a lot, use a lot less power. And as soon as they realized that they could do this for two processing cores, that quickly became four, it became eight, and now you can buy a, um, a processor that has you know, tens of processing cores. And so, you know, what are we doing about this at Berkeley Lab to provide our scientists more energy-efficient computing? Well, what I'd like to do today is um, announce and tell you about our new supercomputer, Cori, that will be coming online in 2016. And the Cori system uh, will be a much more energy-efficient system because the processor used in Cori will have over 60 processor cores on a single chip all running at a, fairly, at a lower uh, clock rate, at a lower speed. And so what we're able to do in this case is use all these little tiny processor cores, but in having so many of them, we're able to offer scientists uh, more powerful supercomputers without increasing our power bill. Thank you. With 22 seconds to spare, are you going to yield your 22 seconds for a price back there? Okay. Next up is Ronan Levinson, who's going to be talking to us about cool roofs. Ronan. I'd like you to take you on a little trip. This is cool roofs through time and space. What's a cool roof? A roof that is reflective to sunlight, stays cool in the sun. This helps keep our buildings cool, our cities cool, and our planet cool, and we get to save energy along the way. But there's a problem. New white roof might reflect 80% of sunlight. This word albedo, it means solar reflectance, or fraction of incident sunlight that gets reflected. But it gets dirty, as we all know, and this is a pretty bad example. This dirty roof now reflects only 50% of sunlight. And the temperature goes up. When the roof goes from clean to dirty, the temperature rose by about 15 degrees centigrade, 27 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, that's no good. We'd like to design and select cool roofs that stay cool. And that, by that, I mean they stay reflective. Here's how we usually find out if a roof is going to stay clean and reflective over time. We put out coupons on a rack. In the US, we send these coupons to three different sites. Florida, which is hot and humid, Arizona, which is hot and dry, and Ohio, which is a milder climate, but it has poor air quality. We let the coupon sit out there for three years. And that's a little bit of a problem, because if you're working in your laboratory and you're trying to make the next great cool roof material, you don't want to wait three years to find out, have you got the right one? 
And this uh, shows you what happens over the course of three years. I have uh, two different types of white roofing. One is a what's called a field-applied coating, gets sprayed onto an existing roof. And the other is a white metal roof, and that got coated in the factory with something that tends to stay pretty clean. And I've got pictures here taken every three months for three years at each of the three sites. And we can see that the reflectance of the uh, field-applied coating, that's the upper one, is dropping more than the reflectance of the white-painted metal. So you'd like materials that behave more like that white-painted metal, but you don't want to wait three years to find out if you've won. So I bring you the cool roof time machine. We start with a device that's called a weatherometer. It's just a weathering apparatus. It exposes materials to cycles of heat and humidity and ultraviolet light. To that, we add something that we've developed at Berkeley Lab, which is our soiling apparatus. It uses a carefully calibrated combination of soiling agents, soot and black carbon, which, sorry, soot is black carbon, and uh, dust, humic acid, which is a proxy for dead organic matter, like leaves, uh, and salt, because that affects the way the things stick to roofs. What we do is we put a roofing coupon in the weatherometer for one day. It gets exposed to UV, to uh, heat, to moisture. Then it goes into our soiling apparatus. It gets sprayed with a soiling mixture for about 10 seconds. And then it gets dried under a heat lamp, five minutes, 10 minutes total. Then it goes back into the soiling apparatus for another day to simulate the effect of wind and rain on uh, the reflectance, that is to say natural cleaning. And then we're done. Three years down to less than three days. And this is what it looks like. First, the material is clean. Then it's conditioned. It's spent a day in that weatherometer. Very little happens. Then we spray. After 10 seconds of spraying, we let it dry, goes back into that weatherometer for a day, gets cleaned off a little bit. And you can see that the reflectance has dropped, but it's dropped in different ways depending on what the material is. I'll let you guys see it once more. Boom, so 48 hours, 10 minutes, well less than three days. Question is, does it work? The answer is yes. What I'm showing here is how well the reflectance after three days in our laboratory apparatus matches the reflectance measured after three years of natural exposure. It's a very nice match. And we use this as part of the process for making better cool roofs and for getting better cool roofs to market faster. So you don't have to wait three years to find out how well it performs. So that's our little trip through time. Now a trip through space. We'd like to know how cool are the roofs in this state already. If the roofs are already cool, there's not much potential to make things better. But if they're not cool, if they're dark and absorbing all the sunlight, well, there's a great deal of room for improvement. We took advantage of the fact that the USDA, of all uh, organizations, has got a program called the National Agriculture Imagery Program, in which airplanes fly over the whole country, pretty much, and they take four band images. And I'll show you what those mean in a second. And the images can be used to detect crops, or in our case, to figure out how reflective are the roofs. So 
this uh, instrument up here is collecting images not just in uh, blue, uh, green, and red, that's what you use to make a color picture, but in one more band called the near-infrared, which is not visible to our eye. So here are four images taken in the uh, blue, green, red, and near-infrared. And those are those very narrow bands in which they're taken. This is the solar spectrum superimposed over those four bands. Now, by having that extra narrow spectrum in the near-infrared, we can tell more about reflectance to sunlight, which is about half invisible. But we need to also know how do roofing materials reflect in each of those four bands. So in our laboratory, we measured that reflectance versus wavelength, including the reflectance in each of those four bands, for nearly 200 different roofing materials. And we developed a correlation, and it's a very nice fit. So from those four narrow band reflectances, we can determine the reflectance of the roofing product. And we also went out to roofs to measure the roof reflectance on site with a device called a pyranometer. And here's my PhD student doing exactly that. So these are what you'd say are ground truthed, or in our case, roof truthed. And what we found is that statewide, um, on average, in these uh, cities, the roofs are maybe 20% reflective. So there's a lot of uh, potential for improvement. A white roof, even a dirty one, is about 50, 60% reflective. And now I want to introduce to you our new online tool that you can go play with at home at albedomap.lbl.gov. And we're going to go to the Oscars, specifically the Kodak Theater in Hollywood. I think it's now the Dolby Theater. So on this website, you can go to one of five cities for which we have complete maps. Here we're starting in Hollywood because, hey, why not? It can't hear you. It's just a movie. <laughs> now I'm going to uh, turn on the layer that shows the reflectances of the roofs. And we're going to uh, click on the building where you would see the Oscars, the Dolby or Kodak Theater. And we can see, or you could see if it was bigger type, that it's just about the same as the average reflectance for roofs in that city of Los Angeles. Um, but you can also see that there are white roofs here shown in blue, which are about 60% reflective. You can go find your own buildings. And thank you very much. Have a, give him a round of applause. It's a good sport. He stopped. So check out, go to, the, this is a very cool map. I really encourage you to go check that out. All right, next up for us is Musa Ahmed, who's going to tell us about combustion. Thanks, sir. Please give him a warm applause. A few probably have had birthday candles lit for them once upon a time, sometimes very recently. And when you extinguish it, you see this little poof of smoke coming out. That is combustion. You light fire, and you have things coming out. If things go to completion, you're going to get carbon dioxide and water. If things don't go to completion, you end up getting carbonaceous particles. You start getting soot. You start getting this black carbon, which the previous speaker was talking about in terms of uh, what was coming down on the roof and making it dirty. So we at the lab are interested in seeing you know, how we can mitigate this, how we can change this, how can we improve burning. You think it's a very, very simple problem. So the graph I show you out here 
This comes from uh, statistics that has been put together by the US government. Basically, what it's showing you is from now up to 2040, most of your energy use is going to be natural gas, like it or not. And out of all of that, most of it is going to be in freight trucks, which is going to be transporting your iPhones, your iPods, your things from here to there. And what it is doing while it is transporting this, it is emitting soot, black carbon, this stuff from the back of the tailpipe. So a big interest in the lab nationwide is this whole idea, you know, can we make cleaner burning engines? One, improve efficiency. Second, remove the sooting particles, which are both detrimental for the environment and for your health. And so the little story I'm going to tell you today is essentially how we are going to probe this using a particle accelerator up at, the, up at Berkeley. So when you burn something, when you burn a fuel, when you take something called gas, and you put it into your engine, it starts out with this very, very small molecules at the bottom, and then very quickly it starts making this what are called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, and then at the top, you end up getting your little particles. This is what you see from a diesel engine. People actually use this to make materials. They burn different kinds of chemicals so they can make things like nanotubes and graphene and other, again, very, very fancy materials which end up, again, in that ubiquitous iPhone that you're carrying around with you. Or a light composite material which goes onto a plane that you're going to fly in the very near future. And if you are in Berkeley and Oakland, you might also want to use a light bicycle. Again, a lot of these materials come out of combustion processes. And finally, something that is near and dear to all of us, we want to understand where we came from and where we are heading. And the idea here is, again, a lot of these processes are implicated in the origin of the solar system. How did, when you start out from the Big Bang and you head off down, you start making molecules, you start making DNA bases, etc., and you end up sitting here in this auditorium in Oakland. So this is the particle accelerator that we have on the hill. It's a beautiful view out there. Most people project onto San Francisco. I choose to project towards Oakland. Remember that. <laughs> so out here, we have a particle accelerator, we have electrons, tiny, tiny bits, which are going around at almost the speed of light. They're spinning around really, really fast. As they spin, they give off energy in the form of light, all the way from the X-rays to the terahertz, to the infrared. And each one of these lines showing out here has a few people, has an experiment going on 24 hours a day, six days a week, Monday is our holiday. And as you turn around, this ring, you're going to see that people are looking at different things, which are all about solving both our energy problem and, and mitigate and the mitigation of what it does in terms of solving our environmental problem. We're looking at things like catalysis. We're looking at things like solar fuels, etc. The reason all these people come to the synchrotron is shown in this one little chart. So sun is down there somewhere. This is like how intense the light is the sun is projecting out. But if you focus that down into a tiny, tiny speck the size of your human hair, say a few microns, you're going to get what is, the, what is the brightness that is coming out from the synchrotron itself. And that is shown way up there. It's 10 orders of magnitude. And then for those of you who talk about, don't think about orders, this is like 10 zeros between the sun and what the synchrotron is giving you. And behind that, we do a whole bunch of chemistry. 
So things like we take a real flame and we analyze what are the chemicals that are coming out of there. We look at this. This is again another beautiful picture taken from the same vantage point. This is one day when the space shuttle was making its last uh, journey home. Out here, you're seeing San Francisco. This is not fog. This is smog. Groups at our beamline up at the ALS are again studying the chemistry that is going on in these atmospheric processes. And again, combustion and environment, they're all implicated. The molecules are the same. They just keep on turning around. We also use the same light to look at things like DNA bases and such like that. This is our Dali-esque rendition of what the DNA would look like upon ionization. And again, we also do things like cosmochemistry, looking at the origins of uh, the solar system. So the experiment today, in the two minutes that I have remaining, I want to tell you about, has been done by these two Australian fellows, postdocs, and uh, Tyler and Dan. And this is a little, little instrument. It's only about yay big. This thing is about one centimeter long. It's got a one millimeter diameter. We put voltages here. We heat it up. We heat it up to 1,500 degrees Celsius. We make it really, really hot. And we pass a gas through it. The gas starts changing. It reacts. We analyze the products that are coming out using the synchrotron. And this is essentially what we are doing with our experiment. We have this hot nozzle. We are passing gas through it. And what we're doing is we're making the phenyl radical, C6H5. So this is one of the radicals which has been, a radical is something that you removed an electron from. This is something that has been implicated in making these sooty particles right from the bottom up, postulated almost 40 years ago. But nobody has seen it experimentally. So we make one of these guys out here. We react it with acetylene, C2H2, a very simple hydrocarbon. And then they come shooting out really, really fast, faster than anybody who can run, 1,500 meters a second, really, really fast. And then the synchrotron zaps it, removes another electron, and these guys start flying up into what is called a time-of-flight mass spectrometer. The slow guys, the fatter guys, make it slower. The light guys make it faster. It's time-of-flight. And what I'm showing you out here is the light guy. This is phenylacetylene. is making it out here around 100. The heavier guy, naphthalene, is making it there at around 120. What you see out here is the first ring formation. Two of these guys have come together, and uh, that is just right timing, because this is my last, last slide. And this is what we're showing out here, that we have shown, using this particle accelerator, one of the first beginning steps of how soot particles form in flames. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Musa. I forgot to mention at the beginning that there will be a question and answer period at the end. We're not going to do it in between segments, obviously, but you'll have a chance to answer all or ask as many questions as you'd like before the bar closes, and then we'll have to. Okay, next up is Andy Westfall, who's going to talk to us about what we can learn from space dust. Please welcome Andy. Thank you. So... I'd like to tell you today about some exciting new results that we've gotten from the studies of samples brought back to Earth from space by the Stardust spacecraft. Stardust was a NASA mission that uh, was really two uh, missions and one spacecraft. I'll talk about
in a, a bit, but this was the very first spacecraft ever to bring back extraterrestrial samples from beyond the moon. And so we're incredibly lucky to have these samples in our labs. So we're really interested in trying to understand the first couple of million years of the solar system's history. We're trying to understand the process by which materials in the interstellar medium came together to form the solar system, the sun, the planets, the comets, the asteroids. And we're particularly trying to understand the original building blocks of the solar system. And the problem we have is that these building blocks are almost entirely absent from most of the materials that we have access to. And so um, not only does this, uh, do the studies of these materials tell us about our own solar system, but they also tell us about solar systems that are forming right now. This is a picture of an object called HH30. It's a solar system being born right before our eyes that we can see in telescopes. So uh, this original material in the uh, interstellar space is by astronomers called dust. And I really don't like the term. I mean, who wants dust? But it's, uh, they're actually rocks, rocks in the classic geological sense of assemblages of minerals. This is what this dust looks like when we look at the plane of our galaxy. Um, and uh, so, as I mentioned, the Stardust spacecraft was really two missions in one spacecraft. The first part of the mission was to collect samples of material from a comet, from a Jupiter family comet called Vip excuse me, VIL-2, and it flew past this comet at about 6.1 kilometers per second, many times the speed of a bullet, and captured particles from the comet uh, in a weird material called aerogel. I'll come back to that. The other part of the Stardust mission was to collect the very first samples of actual materials from outside our solar system, the stream of interstellar dust that's coming into our solar system, which is the result of the motion of our solar system with respect to the local interstellar medium. It's a little bit like driving down a highway in a snowstorm. Uh, when you do that, you see snowflakes coming at you from one direction, and it's the same effect. So um, the Stardust spacecraft came, uh, or the samples came back uh, uh, a few years ago in the Dugway Proving Grounds, and uh, I was very lucky to see this along with my family uh, when, it, uh, when it came in. It came in at record high reentry speed, uh, and um, was, has been incredibly fun to work with. So this is one of the first particles that we extracted from one of the aerogel tiles that was used to capture these particles. Aerogel is a bizarre material. It's only a few times as dense as air. If you hold it in your hand, it's like holding a ghost. You can't really feel its weight. But it has the property that it can capture particles going at many miles per second, practically intact. So this is what, you can't even see the particle here. It's a track from the uh, comet. And here's what it looks like under a microscope. So this is a cometary particle that got captured in the aerogel and extracted in this doorstop-shaped wedge of aerogel. There's no doubt that these are the most challenging extraterrestrial samples ever returned. They're tiny uh, and they're incredibly hard to work with. But that was what makes it really fun. So an example of some of the science we've done with the cometary collection from Stardust is this. This is uh, a study that we did at the advanced light source of a particle called iris. This is the x-ray map of iris. It's a particle that's only 16 microns in diameter. So a micron is a millionth of a meter. This is an incredibly tiny particle. But in fact, it's a rock full of individual minerals. And it turns out that this particle told us, told us about the timing of the largest object in the solar system other than the sun, the planet Jupiter. Uh, and uh, so uh, this is, was an example of the kind of exciting science we can do with these new materials. 
The uh, other part of Stardust um, was the interstellar side, and that turns out to be vastly more challenging than the cometary side. Uh, if we got a tiny little bit of material from the comet, only about 300 micrograms of material, we got less than a millionth of that, we think, from the interstellar dust stream. So this is a really small collection of materials. And our first order challenge, in fact, was to even find the particles in the collector. And so we took a very unusual approach uh, in doing this, and we constructed a, um, a project called Stardust at Home in which Amateurs, that is, citizen scientists, uh, are helping us to identify the impacts in the aerogel through searching through digital images that were acquired by an automated microscope. And uh, so, more at this point, more than 32,000 people have participated in this project. They've collectively done more than 100 million searches. It's a mind-boggling amount of work. And at the close of um, of our first phase of our project, we had discovered 72 tracks. And when I say we, it's really not the people in our lab, but the citizen scientists who've been uh, doing the searching. And now we're up to more than 130 tracks that have been identified, not by us, but by citizen scientists. Um, so this is the first of the interstellar candidates that we have identified in the aerogel. This is a particle called Orion, and this was analyzed using an X-ray microscope or two X-ray microscopes the size of shopping malls. One of them is at, uh, the, uh, uh, it's the advanced light source at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, and uh, this is an X-ray map of this particle in, uh, in three different elements. This is, we can do spectroscopy. This tells us about the minerals that are present. And we can also do x-ray diffraction. This was done at the uh, European Synchrotron Radiation Facility in Grenoble, France. So uh, this is a particle that we think uh, probably formed around another star and then had a very complicated history in the interstellar medium before it was captured by uh, the Stardust spacecraft. By the way, it was discovered by an amateur named Bruce Hudson. He's a retired carpenter in Ontario, Canada. So uh, <clears throat> this is another particle. This is an uh, enormous particle. This, this is the track that it made in this uh, piece of aerogel. And uh, this is track 40, for whatever that's worth. And this particle came at, in at such high speed, about 20 kilometers a second, that it turns out that very little of it survived. We think it just left this track. But that by itself it tells us some very important things about interstellar dust. We also found four candidates in the aluminum foils that were on the spacecraft between the aerogel tiles. And these are some x-ray maps that were taken of these four particles. And the amazing thing about these is that they're all different. So um, I think that the central uh, excitement, really, for us about this is that we've taken the first baby step in observing interstellar dust, not through telescopes, as astronomers have been doing for decades, but instead through, micro through microscopes like the advanced light source. And so uh, our progress in viewing interstellar dust has gone from the scale of light years to the scale of nanometers. It's about 27 order of magnitude improvement in resolution. So that doesn't happen every day. Thank you. Eight minute thing. You think this is this working for you? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Good. So now we're going to shift gears from the outer universe to the inner universe. Our next four presenters actually are going to be focusing more on human health. So first up is Ben Brown. Please give him a warm welcome.
that working? Okay. So these are samples of tap water from Maywood, California. When residents asked for cleaner drinking water, they were told that this satisfies the Safe Drinking Water Act. Our laws like this can only protect you against compounds that we already know are in the water, but new chemicals end up in the water all the time. Recently, 7,500 gallons of methyl cyclohexane methanol, MCHM, were spilled in the Elk River in West Virginia. This is a major local source of drinking water. This chemical had not been in water before. We had no legislation for it, no safety recommendations. The, this chemical had been adopted recently by the coal refining and fracking industries because it was, quote unquote, less toxic than what they'd been using before. However, all they knew about the toxicology of what they'd been using before, uh, or, however, they knew very little about the toxicology of what they were using before and less about MCHM. All we know, there's been one study in rats and the lethal dose has been determined. We know that if a rat eats food made of 825 parts per million of MCHM, it will die. We know nothing else. So this is the only knowledge with which regulators are equipped when they sat down to figure out whether or not this water was safe. So the reasoning went like this, and this is true. Humans are more sensitive to exposure than rats, so we better apply a tenfold correction. So humans are going to be tenfold, maybe, more sensitive to MCHM than the rats were. So maybe it takes only 82.5 parts per million to kill a person. And hey, we vary in our individual susceptibility. It may be an infant is more susceptible than a grown-up. So we better add another tenfold correction to get down to the minimum lethal dose, 8.25 parts per million. And of course, they may have health effects short of outright killing you, so you gotta compute a minimum safe dose. So the minimum safe dose, they added one more correction factor, which magically was picked to be 8.25, giving you a nice round number, a safe dose of one part per million. So, and it just so happens, nice coincidence, there was just a little bit less in the river than that at the time. So congrats, it's safe to go back to drinking the water. So this sort of thing happens more than you might think. We all remember asbestos used in insulation, used in water filtration, used in cigarettes. When you zoom way in and look close at asbestos, it's this spiny, uh, very nasty looking compound. When fibers of it get lodged in the lung, it creates lesions. Those lesions can become cancerous. Uh, Desplex DES, it was prescribed uh, pre to, to mothers to prevent miscarriage for 31 years in this country. Didn't do anything to prevent miscarriage, but it did cause cancer, birth defects, transgenerational effects. If your grandmother took this, you could be at risk, and we're still figuring that out. So it's had untold societal costs that we're still feeling. Atrazine, an herbicide, this is an endocrine disruptor in fish, amphibians, uh, as, as well as uh, invertebrates. Insects. This is illegal in most of the free world. Uh, there's a little three-legged frog, courtesy of atrazine. Uh, so what have we learned from all this? Innovation proceeds. We now have wonderful new nanocompounds like carbon nanotubes that are truly revolutionary. They're creating revolutionary new batteries, intrinsically sterile surfaces for medical applications, uh, solar panels, etc. But we know very little about their safety. We do know that if you inhale it or if you eat it, it ends up lodged in your lungs and it creates these little lesions. We don't know if those become cancerous in people yet or not. There's no regulation for carbon nanotubes yet. Try close on any bacterials in your toothpaste that's in your hand soap. You've probably got lots of it in your house. You've also got lots of it in your drinking water. Try close and breaks down very rapidly in sunlight, but there's no sunlight underground, so it builds up. It bioaccumulates in groundwater. Study in Colorado found if you look at the groundwater, there's not just triclosan in there, there's lots of compounds, including atrazine. Unfortunately, while it's illegal in Europe and Australia, it's still very much legal in the US, and the Midwest uses quite a bit of it. There's some pretty exceptional quantities in uh, some of the drinking water. And of course, when you are exposed to atrazine in the drinking water, it's not all you're getting. You're getting the triclosan too and the other compounds there. So why are we so far behind? 
We're so far behind because this is the regulatory paradigm. We have toxicological testing, principally in rodent models, and the first thing we do is compute, compute the lethal dose. And after we know the lethal dose, then we do testing near that dose and check, oh, does it get cancer? Are there birth defects of the first generation after exposure and things like this? But this takes five years and costs $1.5 million, and we can only do compounds one at a time. So if they have interactions, so if triclosan sensitizes you to disease caused by atrazine, we'll never know in this way. And in all, in all the years we've been doing toxicological testing in the U.S., we profiled about 7% of the 60,000 compounds that industry releases into the environment. Carbon nanotubes, completely unregulated. You can go online with your Visa card, your PayPal account, buy them for about $250 per kilo. Are they the next asbestos? Are they completely harmless? We don't know. So this paradigm is fundamentally broken. We have to do better. We have to move faster. The answer is responsible innovation. We have to bring analysis by academia and regulation by government agencies onto timescales that are relevant to industry. So that's the goal. How do you do that? How do you move so quickly that while a product is being developed, not after it's released, you know what it's going to do to human health and to the environment? It's a grand challenge. It's going to be very hard. We have to be able to make millions of measurements of com many compounds and their mixtures at environmentally relevant dosage, dosages. Uh, we have to be able to understand the effects, not just in humans, but in many species. So we have to be able to extrapolate results from testing in a potentially small subset of species to many others. Uh, that requires collecting data across many species, many genetic backgrounds, uh, and also at many developmental stage, stages, adolescent or childhood exposure or prenatal exposure or perinatal exposure are not the same as adult exposure. We have to go beyond rodents. This paradigm of rodent principle testing is not sufficient. So this is hard. It means we have to start looking at many individual people. And rats are great. Mice are great. They tell us about mammalian health effects, but they have slow generation times and long gestation. We can look at fish, which have 72-hour uh, embryogenesis, and zebrafish, nice, quick uh, times to observe potential birth defects. We can look at invertebrates, like fruit flies and worms, that have 10-day generation times, so we can very rapidly profile multi-generational effects. But it's not enough even to know the effects on animals. You have to look at the microbiome. You have more bacterial cells in your body than you have human cells. One to six pounds of your body mass is bacteria, not people. And those cells, those bacteria, provide you a lot of services. They do a lot of important things for you. Uh, and all of it plays into your susceptibility or robustness to environmental exposures. In mice, uh, gut bacteria mediate, for instance, obesity. Whether you're a skinny mouse or a fat mouse can be determined by the bacteria you have living in your gut. Uh, bacteria in humans is associated with autism. We don't know if it's causal yet, but we know that kids with autism have very different gut microbiomes than kids without. So it becomes a question. Are we one day going to be able to treat human obesity with yogurt? Are we going to be able to treat behavioral conditions with a smoothie? Mental illness with kombucha? These are all questions we're going to have to answer if we're going to be able to understand and predict the effects of environmental toxicants. At LBNL, we have the MODSET program, Model Systems for Environmental Toxicology. The goal of this program is to learn the origins of individual susceptibility to environmental exposures. Our approach is to develop a set of model systems where we can do high-throughput profiling to understand adverse health outcomes of environmental exposures. The technology that has enabled this, the radical new technologies, now we can now make millions of measurements <laughs> with sequencing. You remember the human genome sequence took 10 years, cost $1 billion. Right now you can pre-order your genome for $999. We can also use it to measure the expression of every gene in your body. We can do that. This is a fruit fly responding to cadmium. That is a molecular basis of cadmium toxicity in the fruit fly. That costs $30 now. It'll cost $5 by the end of the year. We can assess the effects of all 60,000 industrial compounds 
for less than two traditional toxicological studies. This is a paradigm shift. I think he needs an extra round of applause for having spoken so quickly and not mispronouncing one word. I'm sure you'll have lots of questions during the Q&A section. Uh, next up is Sylvain Costas to talk to us about healthier DNA. Sylvain, please. So following on the uh, DNA sequencing, we know that healthcare is a hot topic. And uh, I want to make a bet that in the next 10 years, DNA will be the center of this debate. As you heard, DNA sequencing can be used and we can identify the gene of different people and understand how some small differences can make you have cancer and not have cancer. The problem with gene and genomics is that it gives you a bit of a doomsday approach. If you have bad genes, there's not much you can do. So I have a message of hope tonight is that instead of looking at DNA sequencing like Ben is doing, which is great, we can also look at a phenotype, DNA health. So, um, oops, that's not my slide, but I will move on. So basically what you may not know is that DNA breaks happen all the time in our body. And uh, one way to look at it in, in people is to actually go into the bloodstream. And in the blood you will find white cells. Those white cells, you can zoom on them and you can find a chromosome and you can find DNA. And in this case, you're gonna see a DNA double strand breaks, the worst lesion you can have where the two helix are broken. X-ray is typically one source of damage, that's what I've been studying, but we know diet and exercise can influence those response. And your body will detect it, the cells, and then they will send enzyme to repair those breaks. It's an essential step. We do it very well. As we're talking right now, you've got millions of those events taking place in your body. So there is, if you look at DNA health or DNA double strand breaks, which is the assay we have refined, you have a balance between two phenomena. On one hand, you have the damage, that can be influenced by your lifestyle, by what you eat. And then the dooms as approach, your genetics. Not much you can do about this. If you repair poorly, you can basically reduce the damage by simply avoiding the damage, kind of like sunscreen. So the metrics we're using will be helping on that sense. So DNA damage is everywhere. It's influencing everything. Aging is the big one. Uh, the classic process of aging is basically driven by DNA damage. As you have a cell being broken, I mean, I should say DNA broken, you will have uh, a possibility of having a bad repair, and when that happens, the cells can be put into a senescent mode. Basically, it's parked on the side, it will never divide again, and it's a good thing for you. If you don't do that, and the cells continue dividing, you may have cancer, because that cell is supposed to stop, but it keeps doing and multiplying and mutating, and eventually you have a breast cells going into your brain. Not so good. Immunology is another classic example of DNA repair processes, and we know that bad DNA repair will lead to uh, autoimmune disease. And finally, recently, Alzheimer has been linked to DNA damage. Uh, basically, accumulation of DNA breaks in the cells in the brain have been linked to this disease. So it's involving everything. And so my argument is that DNA damage should be measured in everyone, so much as cholesterol test is used right now in the healthcare, and that's gonna be the future. So how it's been done, it's 20 years of process. Uh, we look at the foci assay, which are those, uh, you can't really see here, but there's like little dots on the cells here at the very right. And um, basically, uh, in the past, people would do it manually. It takes a lot of time. It's very biased. 
But the assay works really well if you do it correctly with a lot of training. What we have done is we refine the entire process. So in the past, people had to do a blood draw. We don't do a blood draw. We figure a way to preserve the blood so you can actually collect the blood at home, fix it, preserve it, send it back to us so you can do it anywhere in the world. It, it comes back here, and it's being processed by robots, by uh, microscopes, and the quantification is done automatically. And the beauty with this is scalable, and this process patented by LBL is now uh, in the hands of, of a spin uh, called Exogen. It's a, a spin-off uh, company. And basically, right now, those kits are being distributed. They have been tested. They work very well. And uh, this is the result of some pilot study that's been done with a kit. We're looking here at about 100 people. And uh, we collected the data as a function of uh, edge group. And we're looking on the y-axis. Let me see if I can do that. The y-axis shows the number of DNA doublestrings per cells. And what you can see is as you get older, you have more and more DNA damage. Just what I was explaining, aging. Those points over there are people who had cancer in their life and they end up being extremely high. And that's what the software comes back with. It's all done automatically. Those white dots represent damage. So uh, knowing uh, if you're offside, if you're outside this normal behavior, it could be due to things you've done or the environment, as we heard from Ben. So if you fly frequently, if you uh, uh, have uh, medical imaging, you can change this number. And is there anything you can do about this? Um, there's a lot of fear about radiation. And I think by not knowing what radiation really does to you, we don't feel it, we don't smell it, it's kind of hard to deal with it. And you have uh, the New York Times, was, uh, I think, uh, the biggest media that goes against radiation by uh, scaring people and um, saying that medical imaging is probably bad for you. You're probably going to get cancer from it. Uh, it's a bit of a simplification at the population level. I think it's a bit more complicated than that. And the argument here is that if we can measure it, we can alleviate this fear. So let's go back to this diagram, those data we have. Basically, that's the normal range. You're here. And then if you do a CT scan, the worst dose that you can get is about 10 milligrams, which is going to give you this kind of offset on this assay. Very well detectable. Now, the argument is that if you are outside the norm against genetic, you can't do anything about it. With this, you can. You can take something like nutraceutical, antioxidant, mitigation, and you can go back down. It's been shown. This is done in Germany. They took blood from people. They incubated the blood in antioxidant. And they took the same blood and didn't incubate it at all. And they exposed the blood to radiation ex vivo. And they saw if they could reduce the damage. And what you see here, that's before you take the antioxidant. And 60 minutes after antioxidant, you get a 60% drop in the damage. Doing nothing. Your imaging works just as fine. But now you drop by 60% your damage. And the reason we know it is because we can measure it. The way it works is very simple. It's a classic radiation effect where the radiation will break the water into two components. The radical OH can be blocked by antioxidant. And Rebecca will talk more about this in the next slide, in the next talk. So um, another thing about um, uh, this kind of assay is it's very um, actionable. So for instance, here, I'm showing like three individuals that uh, were co collecting uh, blood as they were running with, uh, with the kit that we came up with. And you can see as they're running, they get more and more damage. And then when they stop running, they go back down. So you're going to tell me, oh, running is bad for you? I should not run? <laughs> well, some people have looked at this. And this is a great study on 20 marathon runners. And that's when they were running the marathon. In the middle of the run, towards the end of the run, they got more damage. OK, oxygen, activities. But look at that. A day after the run, those persons are now below where they were before they run. And that lasts for six days. So that's what it is. Um, a bit more complicated, right? A counterintuitive result. 
that shows you that actually, yeah, you may induce damage, but actually you have a natural response from your body that kicks in. So lifestyle is influencing those numbers in many ways. So the goal here is to use nutraceutical to go from this distribution, which is the data I show you, but not agglomerated into edge, into those data. Because if you look at the data statistically, what's driven here is there are some individuals that will edge faster than others. You can see them. And the problem is, how can we reduce that? So that's my last slide. Thank you. Uh, there's a kit. There's about 600 people currently using the kit. We distributed it. Uh, we had a fundraising about a, a six months ago. And we're now moving to supplement to try to help people protect themselves. Thank you. So next step will be Rebecca Abergel talking to us about whether or not uh, a pill can actually protect against radioactive exposure. Rebecca, please give a warm welcome. Hi. Um, good evening, everyone. So it's a real pleasure to be here and to be able to talk to you about what my team does at Berkeley Lab. So this title is fairly simple. Hello? <laughs> Is that better? Can we start this again? <laughs> so, all right, we're talking about a pill to treat people exposed to radioactive material. There are two key concepts here, the pill and the radioactive material. So I'm going to start by the scarier one, this one, radiation, radioactive materials. Um, there is a lot of this thing out here. Um, we do use radioactive materials for a lot of different processes in industry, nuclear medicine, nuclear energy, in the laboratory for chemistry and biology research, and there's a lot of radionuclides out there in the environment in general. And last but not least, there are a lot of radioactive materials around here in the smoke detector in everybody's house. So it's not, it's really helpful in a way, more helpful than harmful when it's contained and when it's controlled. The bad thing is when it gets out of control. Um, so this image, you know, you have some kind of similar image in your mind when you hear radiation. And this is when you have a big cloud of particles that gets spread around. And the danger is when people start inhaling or injecting radionuclides or radioactive particles. Um, this is an old picture. So you might think, OK, this is not relevant anymore. But in the past three decades, we've seen accidents. We've seen Chernobyl in uh, Ukraine. We've seen Guyana um, in Brazil. So Chernobyl was a nuclear power plant accident. Guyana was the mishandling of a cesium source in a decommissioned hospital, and Fukushima, of course, a few years ago um, that everybody's heard about, again, a nuclear power plant accident after a natural disaster. So accidents happen and will happen again. And what we want to do is mitigate um, the hazards of radioactive materials that will be spread out in the environment. There are a few things out there that will help us. Um, so we've most people have heard of potassium iodide. It's um, to remediate radioactive um, iodine. There is something called Prussian blue that's um, to help with cesium, radioactive cesium. And there is even something called DTPA that will help with um, scarier atoms, elements, like plutonium. And plutonium was invented or discovered at Berkeley. So um, that's. One of the elements that we focus on um, in my lab, and we actually look at all those different elements highlighted here at the bottom of the periodic table. They're called the lanthanides and the actinides. They're F elements or heavy elements. Some of them are radioactive, always radioactive. Some of them can be or cannot be radioactive. Um, but 
most of them will be found in nuclear fallouts. And so we really want to understand the chemistry, the physical chemistry properties, the coordination chemistry properties of these elements, so then we can seek them out if they were in a contamination event. And how do we do this? So we're looking at an element, a metal in that case, and we're designing molecules that will um, trap that metal and form a very stable complex that is much easier to get rid of when you have it um, internally. And so for the people who like chemistry out there, we're binding the metals through those oxygen atoms here, and we really form a very, very stable complex. So this is not only chemistry in the test tube. We do have to show that it works in vivo, because ultimately we want to develop a drug. And so we also have to develop models, animal models, um, to prove that this is going to work. And how do we do this? We inject animals with radioactive material, and so we have contaminated animals. And we do want to know where the radioactivity is in the body. Um, and to do this, we use some powerful tools. Um, and this is a very recent experiment that we've done at the synchrotron, the advanced life source that Musa described a little bit earlier. And here you have a schematic of a kidney. And on the upper image here, you have the image of the kidney of the mouse that was contaminated with uranium. But at the bottom, we take out the background, and this is where the uranium is. So all those shiny spots there is where the uranium gets. And this is the 3D reconstitution of that kidney. And so if we give a higher level of contamination, we see that the uranium on the right, all those golden spots, gets pretty much everywhere. So we know that we contaminate our animals. So once we have this, we give them the drug, and we hope that the drug is going to seek the radionuclide and get out. And so this is a very simple proof of concept experiment. We're looking at plutonium contamination of mice. And we're looking here at the percentage of the injected plutonium. The control bar here is our animals that were only contaminated. And so you see that about a little more than 40% after 24 hours is in the bones. That's the gray area. The red area is what's left in the liver and up there in the tissues and in the kidney. So you have about 90% after 24 hours that's still in the body and it's getting stuck. But if we give them our drug, and in this case it was once, one dose, we can go from 90% to less than 20%. So that's a pretty dramatic um, reduction in body burden of the contaminant. So that's proof of concept. And this is where all the work starts. Um, in the pharmaceutical development world, to take a drug from the research bench to the market, you need about a billion dollar in 15 years. So hopefully we can do all this and much less time and for much cheaper. But our work now is focused on three different pillars, which, is, which are formulation, efficacy, and safety. So the formulation part gives, takes me back to the pill concept. We want to be able to give something to people in a nuclear event that's easy to take. We're not going to hand out a bunch of needles and tell people to inject themselves. So we want to give them an oral pill, something that they can swallow. We also want to make sure that you can also crush it if you wanted to give it to smaller children, elderly people who can't swallow pills. So we have to work on how we formulate our compounds or drugs. Then there's efficacy. We have to show that it's efficacious. Um, but we also need to know how effective our drug is. When do you give it? How long can you um, wait after the contamination? Do you have to give it within an hour, or you can wait three days? Um, how long is the treatment going to be? Is it going to be only one dose? Can, do you need to take it daily for two weeks? When do you stop? So those are all the data that we get from our animal experiments. 
And I'm happy to say that the last part is to assess the safety in humans. Um, we're not going to test the efficacy in humans because we're not going to contaminate people on purpose just to test our things. But we are going to want to know if there are side effects or if the drug is safe. And that's a very standard type of clinical trials. So we actually just received approval from the Food and Drug Administration about a month ago to start a clinical trial to assess the safety of one of our drugs. That's a good news. Um, and so we are hopefully getting a commercial product or a, a pill out there in a few years so that in the event of a nuclear contamination, we could use it. So this is uh, not something that one person can do. There are a lot of collaborations involved in this project, and I can't list them all because I only have 30 seconds left. But there are a lot of people in this lab who work on this. It's really team science. It involves a lot of things from coordination chemistry to pharmaceutical development, understanding, doing experiments with animals, with people. Um, it's a lot of work. But hopefully, we can develop this very fast in a very cheap way, and hopefully, no one will ever have to use our drug. Thank you, Rebecca. So our next and last presenter, time has gone quickly, uh, is Shashi Buluswar. There's one correction, though. It's about, his talk is about a solar vaccine refrigerators, which is an important distinction, as you will see. Please welcome Shashi. I have in my hand possibly the single most powerful, amazing thing ever made, ever invented by humankind. Not the remote control. <laughs> this hand. Here's what it is. Vaccine. Think of how sick you would be if you didn't get these as a kid. Think of how sick you'd be each year if you didn't get your flu shots. And to be sure, we've conquered and, and rested, uh, uh, rested control of so many diseases because of this. And because of the invention of this, a number of countries all over the world launched vaccine campaigns uh, for diseases such, like, such as polio. Now, let's see what the problem is. It's wonderful that these things have been invented. But here's where vaccines are created. They're actually manufactured in extremely well-controlled environments where uh, the temperatures are very carefully regulated. The reason the temperatures have to be regulated is that inside this bottle, the little bugs, the vaccines are called live attenuated vaccines because these bugs make you just a little sick so that then your immune system knows how to fight against that bug. And so... Vaccines have to be from there all the way to when they reach the patient, the child, between 2 degrees and 8 degrees centigrade. That's about 35 to 45 degrees Fahrenheit. So they're made here. Then they're shipped. If you think of uh, a lot of low-income countries, this is where the problem starts getting interesting. They're shipped to capital cities or large urban centers, where typically they have uh, cool rooms like this. Sometimes they have power. If they don't have grid power, they have diesel. But this is pretty good. The inside of these facilities looks like this. There's very, very good temperature control. But that's where things start breaking down. If you get to remote areas, this is what a clinic looks like. Okay? This happens to be in Pakistan, funded by 
your tax dollars, partly. That bed is where a woman gave birth the previous day. That toilet has no running water. And chances are, if you use it, you'll get more sick than you were coming in. And over here are vaccines. They've been there for Lord knows how long. And so to avoid that problem, what happens? In a lot of these, uh, these higher-up clinics in urban centers, they have these freezers, and they freeze these things. And this is what these freezer packs look like. They get these things really cold. They get them to minus 25 degrees centigrade. And then they pack them into boxes like this. Okay. What happens after that? Healthcare workers carry them on foot, on bicycles, on boats, sometimes on airplanes. And what happens is, because these things are minus 25 degrees centigrade, within 10 or 15 minutes, a good number of them freeze. And if they're in this too long, imagine you're going out in a very hot place. It's, the vaccines are sitting in, in, in a, a, a box that has ice. The ice melts, and the vaccines get too warm. So by the time these things actually reach the kid, about half the vaccines in, uh, here's what happens. So we actually went to Kenya, we did a bunch of tests, and here's what we noticed, is this is a typical ice box, and two to eight degrees should be over here, right? It's well, well, well below freezing. Okay? So what happens is that half the vaccines in the world are thrown away because they get too warm. Turns out that there's an easy way to tell when a vaccine gets too warm, but there's no easy way to tell when it gets too cold, when it freezes. So in addition to half the vaccines being thrown away because they're too warm, there's no way to tell when they're too cold, and so Lord knows how many kids are actually taking these things thinking they're protected. So how do we solve this problem? Uh, we asked a scientist to say, look, assume that in these places that have no electricity, you have not seen a refrigerator before because the refrigerator is big, bulky, requires a lot of power. How would you solve this problem from scratch? And the first concept they came up with is, what about, what about freezing it from the middle? Now, usually, if you think of a fridge, the cooling is done from the outside, right? What, what if you cooled it from the middle? Um, and then construct a fridge so that you're actually pulling out chambers instead of a, a fridge door, which opens and closes that way, let, letting in hot air pull up the chambers, have drawers, and have the vials sitting in the drawers. The second neat thing they did was actually use a very familiar technology. Katie, the, the beginning of, of our conversation this evening, was talking about how much heat computers generate. Turns out that virtually every computer in the world has a chip made of a compound called bismuth telluride. Bismuth telluride is, a is from, a, from a class of compounds called uh, thermoelectrics, and they have a very unique property, which is if you give them heat, they, ge they generate electricity. And if you give them uh, power, they transfer heat, which is what laptops use. And so that's the mechanism we use to essentially freeze water over there. And then over time, that, 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 that coldness dissipates. Uh, this is where we are today. We have a, uh, a fridge that we're about to send out to be tested by the World Health Organization. Hopefully, by the time we're done, we'll have a fridge in a backpack so that healthcare workers going to faraway places can carry them with them for days. How well does this work? Well, so one test is how long does it keep the vaccines cool without power? 
So this is a graph that shows the, the possible ranges minus five degrees to, to 20 degrees centigrade. The World Health Organization requires that in 43 degrees centigrade, which is about 110 Fahrenheit, the vaccines have to stay cold for 20 hours with no power. We did our tests last month. Here's where we are. Day one, day two, three, four, five. We get almost six days of what's called holdover time. So you could take this into a desert and you get six days of, of the vaccines being safe. So that's one kind of problem we're, we're working on. Um, and by the way, the other thing we, we're going to be doing in this is tracking how the thousands of fridges that get deployed all over the country will be, are doing. So if any fridge fails, we'll actually have a mechanism of tracking uh, the failure and reporting it back. Um, that's one problem. Now, our mandate is to focus on a whole bunch of problems. And we've just released a study called The 50 Most Important Science and Technology Breakthroughs Required to Solve Poverty. And we're looking at problems in health, food security, human rights, gender equity, digital inclusion, climate change, uh, water, and electricity. And the study will be out soon. Uh, we'll post it on our website. You are more than welcome to look at it, learn from it, and critique it. Now what I'll do is uh, ignore that <laughs> for a second. Uh, like many of you, I live in Oakland. And as a US national lab, we're also challenged to, to look at problems in the states. So let me show you something very interesting about Oakland. And we'll see what kind of problems we, we wrestle with here. So this is a, a USDA map of Oakland. And you may have heard the phrase food desert. What this shows is USDA's estimate of where the food deserts are in Oakland. And food deserts are defined on the basis of can you walk there easily? If you have access to a car, can you drive there easily? And guess where all the McDonald's are? So this is a problem in inner city America. One of the big problems is that uh, low-income populations do not have access to healthy food. And so we're working with the office of uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee to figure out how to build uh, affordable, sustainable systems for food production in inner city America. Thank you. Lab scientists. Okay, we're going to now uh, move gently into our uh, Q&A session. We're going to uh, begin, though. We're queuing up. Ross, could you queue up the... Uh, these are questions that came to us from uh, first Friday, uh, last Friday night. Some of your friends and colleagues, perhaps you know who these folks are. These are questions we're going to answer in the Q&A just to kind of kick it off. You, you guys will have an opportunity. We're going to place these mics down here, and you'll have a chance to ask our scientists questions as well. So let's go. My name is Elena, and I have one question. How can one pill prevent radioactive exposure? My name is Alex, and I live in Oakland, and I'd like to know what comets tell us about the early universe. Hi, my name is Andrew Middleton. I'm from Skinny Atlas, New York, and I'd love to know more about how better efficient diesel engines in particular can affect uh, black soot carbon emissions. Hi, my name is Ashley. My question is, why is healthy food so expensive and so not available for low-income families? Hi, my name is Marina. I live in Alameda, and I want to know, how can I ensure that my produce is safe from chemicals? 
Hi, uh, my name is Paul McGee, and I am asking a question about advocacy and climate change. Uh, a friend of mine is a coach and a scientist, and she was telling me a story about being at a conference with thousands of scientists and wanting to do something in terms of educating the public about their position on climate change. And there was a lot of reluctance and hesitancy amongst that crowd to do so. And I'm just kind of curious uh, for the scientists out there, what you know, what causes you to be reluctant to, to speak out about climate change? Thank you. My name is Jasmine Aguilera, and I'm wondering if the ozone depletes to the point where we get lots of uh, radiation from space, will we be able to adapt to it and get mutant powers, or will we just die out too quickly? <laughs> All right. So now we're going to have our scientists come out. So uh, please feel free to come up. Oh, there's always uh, this moment of hesitation that we have a gentleman here. But before we get started, I want to ask Rebecca a question that was... So let's just assume that we can have a, a pill, to, as you described. Uh, would there would be repeated dosings? Would you need it to take more, more than once? And what are we going to do with all the hazardous waste that's produced? You have to bring that up, right? Yes, okay. Why is it that? Um, well, so as I said, um, we have to define the dosing regimen. So it, it will depend on the type of contamination. And if there's just a little bit, is a few pills, a few doses. So three days, once a day, going to be enough? Or is this going to have to be for two years every day or forever? Um, so it, will, it really depends on the type of contaminant and what we'll learn from our clinical trials. Um, and then in terms of... How do we collect what comes out? That's a big question, a big problem. Um, if there is a dirty bomb or a big event in a metropolitan area, you have millions of people contaminated, there's going to be a lot of logistic issues. Um, and so hopefully we'll figure them out then. <laughs> OK, to be decided. So our first question, could you please give your name and where you're from, please? Uh, Jay Connect. I'm here from Oakland. Uh, my question is about the cool roofs. You said you had tested all of the different materials of, of roofing, and what were the results in terms of is the, are the white materials that you were talking about, what sustains the best over time? If you have a 30-year mortgage, what is going to last the best at, over these years? <laughs> sure. No, that, that's a great question. The answer is the materials out there right now that retain reflectance best often have what's called a fluorinated polymer. Think Teflon. Um, type coating built into them. So the white metal that I showed you, for example, that kind of roofing product has been out there for 30 years, and it really just doesn't get very dirty because things that drop out of the air don't really stick to it very well. However, I know that most people, if they're thinking about a roof for their home, are either going to look at what's called an asphalt shingle or they're going to look at a tile, especially here in California. My recommendation is your best choice right now for a cool roofing product for your home is probably going to be a tile made out of either clay or concrete, doesn't really matter. But these are more reflective than you think they are. They tend to reflect the invisible part of sunlight more than the visible, so they're remarkably cool for how dark they look. They last a very long time, and they offer two other advantages. Not only do they reflect sunlight well, but also air flows both above and beneath the roofing product, so it gets cooled from below as well as from above. Also, it has what we call thermal mass, meaning that it's slow to heat up and slow to cool down. And this helps prevent what we call uh, peak demand, where everybody is turning on their air conditioners late in the day because the roof material is heating up much more slowly. So practical choice right now is to go for a tile roof. It could be white if you want. Uh, red is a very common choice here. Thanks. Thanks. 
Next, please. Uh, this is for uh, Sylvain. So you were talking about the runners uh, and uh, other things that cause uh, those DNA breaks. So is it a matter that running is good for you, or is it, ma- is it something like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, so that are you also seeing that same effect of a drop afterwards after things like uh, radiation, so that uh, there's a big uh, uh, uptick, and then is there a lower tick? Does it go down as the body adapts to it? And the second part of that, those antioxidants, do they have to be taken while that, uh, that sine wave is occurring? Right, great question. So, um, yeah, it's called hormesis. So that that concept of a little bit of bad is good for you, and uh, it's in the field of radiation. It's a very controversial topic. Uh, there's actually an entire group that believe hormesis exists. That a little bit of radiation is good for you. The data are very difficult because the problem is running. Everybody can do it, so we can quantify it very nicely with this assay we have. Radiation, uh, we really don't want to expose people, so all we can do is ex vivo exposure, as I show you, and you can give antioxidant and protect the damage. So that's the kind of experiment you can do in a big amount, but as far as in vivo experiments, a bit harder. We would have to deploy these kind of techniques on uh, people who get medical imaging, for instance. So that the answer is more difficult for radiation, unfortunately. My name's Anna Klein, and I'm from Oakland, and I have a question for the computers. Why do the computers have to be so big? Well, am I on? I'm on. Um, so actually, one of our supercomputers is probably about as big as maybe the house you live in, right? And that's the square footage. It's bigger than my apartment. But uh, So why do they have to be so big? Uh, one of the reasons is because we're using so many processors together. So uh, just think about if you put all of your laptops or computers together, it would just start to take up a lot more space. And we also need space for the fans to keep things cool. And we have to have some, some spacing for heat flow, too. So that's how a supercomputer ends up taking you know, a room as big as this auditorium. Thanks. Thank you for asking the question. Is that Mr. Middleton down there? Did I, uh, that help? Do you want to, excuse, I'm sorry, can you just ask you, 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 he was one of the gentlemen that was actually on camera, you want to ask your question live? Uh, certainly. Okay, excuse me. I thought that was you, so let's take I got, advantage got of the opportunity. picked out of the audience here. Yes. Um, next time I'm going to try the trench coat and fedora. Um, <laughs> All right, so my question was, uh, well, I've, I've been interested in um, watching uh, European automakers really focusing on efficient diesel engines. And um, if we're interested in black carbon, which, of course, is a really potent greenhouse gas, is that something we want to do in the United States? I certainly like the idea of a 40, 50 you know, mile per, ga- per gallon of diesel fuel car. But if it comes at the expense of greater carbon, uh, you know, black carbon emissions, um, is, it, is it a win? Um, maybe I answer that yes, one. Yes, that was for you. I'm sorry. Yeah. So it's a mixed bag. So what you have is this engine that you have is what you're putting in there, you're putting in pressure and temperature. And you're basically trying to burn something. At the end of the day, you're going to burn it. And what the Europeans are doing, they're trying to get it more efficient in terms of burning. But as you said, in the efficiency of burning, you end up also sending a lot of stuff out of the tailpipe. So what we in the national labs and also in Europe, this this is an international problem. It's not just a US problem are trying to figure out if you can understand the fundamental chemical mechanisms. To give a very simple example, you need oxygen and you need a hydrocarbon to actually get this thing to go. And when you're thinking about biofuels and things like that, biodiesel, 
the oxygen is already coming in with your hydrocarbon. These are oxygenated biofuels. So there's a huge amount of science that is going right now trying to understand the fundamental mechanistic details. The one thing I showed you, that is one reaction within like thousands of other possible reactions. And one of the cool things that, that started off with the supercomputers that we have at NERSC, people were studying these combustion mechanisms where you have thousands of intermediates, 10,000 of reactions. But if you can capture one of those rate-limiting steps and change the chemistry right at the beginning under extreme conditions of pressure and temperature, you might have come up with a better engine. The other part which I want to say is what we want to have is a predictive understanding of combustion. So the whole idea is a computer should be able to calculate this out, but you need an experimental verifiable, and that's what we're doing. So Andy, I want to ask a question that was asked by uh, the first Friday folk person uh, about what do comets tell us about the early universe? That's a great question. So comets actually don't really tell us much about the early universe. Um, that really, uh, our knowledge about the early universe comes from astronomical observations, uh, for example, of the microwave background. The comets are really telling us about something else and something I think that's equally exciting, which is our own origins. So comets formed at the edge of the solar system four and a half billion years ago and lock in or contain those primitive building blocks of the solar system. And um, that's why they're so important. And this is really telling us, when we study this, these materials, it's telling us about our own origins. I like to make the comparison to paleoanthropologists. For example, Tim White at Berkeley, who goes to Ethiopia to study ancient, uh, or to look for ancient fossil hominids that are four and a half million years old. And that's also about our origins. Here we're trying to understand, uh, uh, we're going back a, a thousand times further in time to the beginning of the solar system to understand how the solar system formed and, and ultimately the stuff that made us. Thanks. Before we take the next question here, I, I want to ask Ben, I, I feel that we, you know, we, we have the eight-minute rule, but we kind of rushed you. Uh, the audience loved what you were saying. I don't know that, I want to make sure that we really seal the deal on this test that you have developed so that they really can understand it. So if you would like to take another minute or so to explain it, feel hey, free. You're very kind. Are you guys interested in hearing another minute about uh, toxicology? Okay. I thought so. Okay, so it's great that we can sequence genomes, but the, the genome is the same in every cell in your body, right? You have the same genome in your blood, in your heart, in your eye. But obviously your eye cells are very different than cells in your heart. And the difference between those cells, I mean, you have such magnificently different cell types and so many different cell types in your body, is the set of genes that are turned on or turned off and the level at which they're turned on, the level at which they're expressed. We usually talk about genes being expressed. If you remember from your uh, molecular biology, the DNA codes for RNA codes for protein. So DNA is transcribed into RNA, which is the messenger that will ultimately be translated into protein, which is a lot of what you're made up of. Uh, so by measuring gene expression in a particular cell type, we can see what that cell is doing. Uh, and for a lot of those genes, we know what they do. And we know what they do because of foundational work, foundational science that was done in model organisms. When you read about a study in a paper that traces the activity of some particular gene to cancer risk or some disease, 
the association of that little bit of DNA with disease, that statistical association, is found by epidemiology, by surveying many people. But the reason we can interpret that epidemiology, the reason we know that that really is an important gene is because of foundational science done in model organisms. It's Drosophila melanogaster, the fruit fly, C. elegans, the worm, the soil nematode, uh, that have really taught us what genes do. Uh, so when we look at that little plot I showed very briefly with spikes going up and down, when we look at a plot like that that shows us how genes are being expressed across an entire genome, because of all this foundational work in model organisms, we can see the genes that go up and we know a lot about the molecular functions that that will have in the cell or at the time or during development. So what we're moving toward with this kind of testing is a new paradigm for toxicology where we have predictive toxicology. Never before have we had molecular readouts. Toxicology until now has been staring at a critter and saying, oh, does it have tumors? Oh, does it have the right number of legs? Is that mouse's head on wrong? That has been the paradigm. And going from that to molecular mechanism, why was that toxic? We've not been able to do. So it's very important to know the mechanism of action because that tells us a lot about the window of susceptibility. For most of us in this room, the very charming children notwithstanding, uh, we're beyond the window of susceptibility for a lot of these endocrine disruptors. But obviously it's important to future generations too. So the new mode of toxicology will allow us to predict effects uh, rather than just stare at them. And that'll tell us a lot about uh, what to avoid and why we have to avoid it. Thank you. And last question of the evening. Hi, my name is Edward. I'm from Fremont. I had a question regarding the vaccine storage. So when it's not stored at the proper temperature, um, how does this affect the vaccine? Is it mostly the efficacy? Yeah, uh, if it gets too warm or too cold, uh, you might as well be drinking water. It doesn't harm you, but it doesn't actually protect you. Oh, and, uh, and so as a result... Uh, I think I might have mentioned this, about 1.5 million children die every year from diseases for which there are vaccines, while we're throwing away half the vaccines in the world. Thank you for your question. So with that, we will close the evening. Uh, a reminder, these are only eight of thousands of scientists at Berkeley Web. So the brain power on stage is pretty impressive. That's why we like working there. Thank you, scientists. Thank you, Oakland. Let's give a round of applause for everybody. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.